Welcome everybody to the weekly live stream this week. I really wish I could give you like a day, like the Tuesday live stream, the Thursday live stream, because this is on Thursday. However, things are constantly changing and I'll tell you that and the reason why here in a moment. But you know, a few weeks or actually no, it was a few months ago, I was teaching a class. I know these students well, right? They're my students, but a lot of them are not Christians. And one of them had the question for me and pretty much flat out asked, do Christians believe that anyone who does not believe in Jesus is going to hell? Now, I would respond differently if this person was a stranger. I didn't really know them. Uh, but so I said, yes, because, and the moment I said yes, there was this, kind of this shock that went over the faces of some of their students as, how dare you? How dare you say someone is wrong? How dare you say someone is going to go to hell? How dare you say these things? And so this kind of leads back to the question of, and things I discuss in many different ways. And actually what I talked about in my high school class this week, in my historical Christian doctrine class. And so that's what I want to give you in our weekly discussion today. I want to go over this idea of truth very briefly, but I want to give you the three very practical, easy ways in which Christians should respond to ideas of tolerance and the hatefulness of Christians and how we are maybe, you know, just not very good in culture, I guess you could say, and ways in which we can engage in conversations. You know, I'm also speaking at an event coming up here on February 8th at Biola University called Turn Your Campus, where high school students from around the area representing tens of high schools and many different churches are coming to to learn how to evangelize and really how to cultivate a culture that lasts, how to bring Jesus into the culture. And the conversation that I'm going to be talking about or the talk I'm giving there is, I think I titled uh, con, uh, cult, uh, or Culture Changing Conversations, which is ultimately uh, how do we evangelize a culture that has all of these false ideas about Christianity, that is constantly thinking false ideas about Christianity, how do we actively, confidently engage in those conversations in a way that brings pressure off of us and engages in a way that brings Jesus in a, in a way that I think is more effective and ultimately then will transform culture? Because right, the goal of my show, the goal of my channel is to train you to be Christian ambassadors, to take Jesus Christ into the culture in an effective and winsome way. I'm on an affiliate of Stand to Reason. If you don't know them, that's kind of their motto, and that's where I kind of got this from. And tonight, I'm also going to be taking a lot of ideas that I've learned from the book Tactics by Greg Kokel, an incredible book. The 10th anniversary just came out, a highly recommended book. And so that's going to be uh, what we're looking at in our conversation tonight is try to effectively help in engaging conversations and responding to people who claim that Christians are intolerant simply for claiming truth. And hopefully this helps. And again, if you have comments or thoughts or specific issues that you would like some pointers on, I'll try to get to those here at the end of our conversation. Now, one thing I do want to talk about, and the reason why I said that I wish this could be a normal time every single week, but it's not, it's because I love to do interviews. And when it comes to doing an interview, it's, hey, when is the person I'm interviewing available? And I have some two big interviews I want to tell you about coming up. Next week, Dr. Gary Habermas, and if you don't know him, he is considered to be probably the leading expert on the evidence for the resurrection. He's been studying it for over 30 years, read everything there is to read on the topic in like French, English, and German. He's going to be coming on the show next week to discuss the evidence for the resurrection. How do we use the evidence for the resurrection and the resurrection of Jesus to effectively engage our culture? 
And then he's also an expert on near-death experiences, uh, times when people are close to death, uh, they've almost died or whatever, uh, their heart stops, their brain stops, and then their soul actually leaves their body and experiences things out of body. And so we're going to be talking about kind of the theological and apologetic significance of that, of how we can use these experiences, which are scientifically and experientially confirmed to bring people into conversations about Jesus. So that is going to be next Wednesday. It's already posted as a live stream on my channel. Go check it out. Hit that reminder so you don't miss that. And then on February 10th, it's a Monday. So tonight's Thursday, next Wednesday, and then finally on the Monday, February 10th, Jeff Swearink, an astrophysicist and research uh, senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe, is going to be coming on about a, a new book that he just wrote called Escaping the Beginning, and it's confronting challenges against universe's origin. So the idea that our universe had a beginning points to a beginner. God. This makes sense within Christianity. Now, a lot of other theories have come up to try to disprove the beginning of the universe to get away from this need for a beginner. And so Dr. Jeff Zwerink is going to be coming on the show uh, February 10, at about, I think about four o'clock in the afternoon on a Monday to, to talk about Christianity, the Big Bang, and the scientific ways in which people are trying to prove the universe doesn't have a beginning, but ultimately showing it does, and this actually can be used again in evangelism, pointing people to Jesus, talking about new scientific discovery. So don't miss that conversation as well. So that's what we're going to be uh, in the next few weeks kind of leading up. And a few other interviews are in the works, so make sure you don't miss those. And hey, if you don't want to miss those, hit that subscribe button below. Maybe turn on those notifications so you make sure you don't miss the upcoming live streams and upcoming interviews and the videos that are coming out. All right, so to our conversation today, and what I want to cover is this idea simply of how do we practically engage these false ideas, right? And I think it probably wouldn't take very long for you to come up with some of these false ideas, some of these hateful things that you have heard, that, that Christians are homophobic, that we are bigoted, that we are anti-gay and all this kind of stuff, that we are Islamophobic, that we, you know, uh, um, maybe are even hypocritical and judgmental. In fact, a study was done that said that interviewed people and said, "What? How do you view the church? People from outside the church. How do you view the church and Christians?" And about eighty percent of them used the word "judgmental" described how they view the church. Now, what's also interesting is that they asked non-believers, uh, "How many of you know someone who's a Christian?" And like eighty-five or so percent said, "Yeah, I know a Christian," but only about ten to twenty percent said, "I see an actual change in." the character of the Christian. Most Christians that people know don't live any different, right? That the gospel hasn't actually transformed us and we maybe argue and we fight and we disrespect and we put people down maybe as much as anybody else would. So how do we enter into these conversations that can get our blood boiling, that can get us very frustrated in a way that still honors and respects Christ as we bring the truth to people in both love and and grace. So what we even have to start with, why is there a problem? Well, our culture has this postmodern influence and this idea that truth is relative. The truth is subjective. It depends on the person. Now, not very many people are going to be full-blown postmodernists, full relativists, where all truth is subjective. Most would still hold to scientific truth, mathematical truth as being objective. Two plus two is four. You don't get to change that. But they would see moral truth as being 
relative, subjective, and they would also see uh, um, uh, religious truth as also being relative and subjective to the individual. That, hey, whatever you believe is good for you, that's good for you, you know, but that's not true for me. That sort of thing, right? And, and I've talked about this a lot where it's like, hey, how do we view this truth? Is it more like ice cream, just preference and opinion, or is it more like medicine, where it's true whether you believe it or not? And my goal when I'm working with students is I'm trying to help them see religious and moral truth in the same way they see scientific, historical, and mathematical truth. Why is it that when I say 2 plus 2 equals 4 and every single other number is wrong, that's not hateful, but when I say Jesus is the only way and all other religions are wrong, is hateful? Well, because people believe different things. Well, of course they do. But truth doesn't depend on what we believe. Truth depends on what corresponds to reality. And so this is an issue right from the beginning. And, and the reason why I think, and I mentioned this, with, you know, this week with my students, and a lot of thoughts are just coming up as we talked about this, is that Christians often use terms like, well, two plus two is four. The sky is blue. And we make these kind of truth statements, but then we say, I believe in God. And I think this maybe kind of gives a false view to maybe uh, those who are listening. Now, it's not wrong to say, I believe in God, I do. But to the outside world, they might hear that differently. Rather than God exists and saying, well, I believe God exists, that may convey a slightly different message. Now, why do I believe it? Well, I believe it because it's true and I have good reason to support that. This is actually a knowledge claim rather than simply my opinion, my belief, my belief. Now I see the comment that just popped up right here where, you know, a lot of people claim my truth, right? This is my truth. This is your truth. No truth. Like truth is not changed to the person. Like again, no one would say, oh, that's your truth. That two plus two is four. My truth is two plus two equals five. No truth is true. Whether you believe it or not. Truth is true whether you like it or not. And I can't, I always use the example of when I had appendicitis, when I had to have my appendix taken out. If I believed my appendix was fine, that didn't make it better. If I believed I was healthy, I didn't become healthy. My appendix was going bad, whether I believed it or not, whether I liked it or not, or whether even if I knew it or not, it took them eight hours to figure out it was my appendix. They didn't know, but didn't make the problem go away. So how do we respond? How do we kind of jump in and think about some practical responses? Well, the first thing is we need to learn how to diffuse false ideas, right? And there's kind of two different ways, ways false ideas are presented. The first one is that simply just a self-refuting claim, right? A claim that makes two opposite two opposite contradictory propositions. They both can't be true at the same time. So for example, my brother is an only child. Well, if he's your brother, he's not an only child. And if he's an only child, he's definitely not your brother, maybe adopted, but can't be a blood brother. It's same things like this. So when someone says, you know, there is no truth. Now, what I think we often want to do is go, we go, yes, there is. No, there's not. And we both have these different ideas and our ideas are clashing. What you'll notice here in, in the practical response is it's, we need to be asking questions. When you ask a question, it causes them to think. And that I think is a huge point that we need to remember and is hard. I know it's at least hard for me because we have a lot of ideas and it is easy for us to share our ideas. That's not hard. We have lots of ideas and we want to tell people the things that we think. It's a lot harder to sit and listen 
and it's harder to actually stop and think about the ideas that we have. And so when we use questions to respond to the claims that people make, what the good questions do is the good question causes them to stop and actually reflect on the assumptions that they have, on the ideas that they have. And hopefully, as we'll see towards the end, then that causes them to recognize the problem with their idea rather than us just simply telling them. Because something that you don't want to do is just tell them what they're doing is wrong. Right? If you're like me, how, what is your first initial instinct when someone tells you what you have to do or tells you that you are wrong? For me, my walls immediately go up. And sometimes, no matter what it is, depending on who they are, obviously, I want to be like, nope definitely not doing it right i was umpiring a baseball game the other day and my partner says you shouldn't wear a watch no umpires wear a watch that's not what veterans do and i was like dude i'm keeping my watch on now like that was my first thought i'm gonna keep my watch on who what do you mean umpires don't wear watches i i see other umpires wearing a watch uh, the other guy i was just talking to was now i'm definitely keeping the watch on that i think can be something that we do Maybe something that we can fall into. So by asking good questions, helping them realize they don't feel like you're forcing the belief on them. You're helping them. They think they thought of it themselves. You're helping them think for themselves and then they're more likely to adopt that idea. All right. So if someone says there is no truth, you ask the question, well, is that statement true? You're causing them to stop and think. When someone says there are no absolute truths, is that, are you absolutely sure? Right? You can't know anything for sure. Are you sure about that? Yes, I'm sure. Well, now you do know something for sure that you can't know anything for sure. And so these are just simple self-refuting claims that when we can learn to see them and spot just the falsity right from the get-go, we ask a simple question and hopefully that helps them see the problem. Because also what we see in our culture are a lot of what you could call like a weak slogan, things that people just spew out that really don't stand up really well. So for example, people often claim, who are you to judge others? Now, how does a Christian often respond? Well, uh, because God said so. Well, I don't believe in God. Well, you should. And we're kind of stuck maybe, or it leads to something else. Instead of saying, who are you to judge others? Christian responds, are you saying it's wrong to judge? what would they say? They'd have to say, yes, I'm saying it's wrong to judge. Okay, well, now you're making a judgment. Why do you get to judge people and I can't? Now, if they're super upset and they're super mad already by the, by the engagement, they may not take it well. It's not that they're always going to be like, wow, that was an incredible point. Thank you for sharing that. I really do appreciate you bringing that to my attention. But oftentimes you ask that question, okay, are you saying it's wrong to judge? Yes, it is wrong to judge. Okay, so you're making a judgment. Why, why, why are you saying it's wrong to judge then? Isn't that your judgment? That may help them stop and they go, wow, I've actually never thought about it that way. Now, I forgot to post this in the description below, so I'll have to do it when this is over. But there are two videos I show my students, and one of them clearly does this. There's multiple times in the video where good questions are asked, and the person stops and goes, wow, I've never th I have actually never thought about it like that before, when you ask those good questions. All right, someone says, you know, that's just your opinion. Well, they're normally wouldn't say that when you're like, hey, I love coffee, ice cream. Well, that's just your opinion. Yeah, it is. Right. But when we say Jesus Christ is God and you have to believe in him to go to heaven, that's just your opinion. They're normally using that phrase to say you're wrong. Well, is it is that your opinion? Are, are you trying to say that what I'm saying is false? What, what are you actually trying to convey with this? Why do you think that that's a false idea?
Um, you know, uh, you, I'll, I'll hit one more here really quick, kind of this idea, and I posted in the description of saying Jesus is the only way to heaven is exclusive and discounts all other religions. Yeah, it does. Is that a problem? Right, saying a senior citizen discount is only for senior citizens and discounts all young people. That's exclusive. Yeah, it is. Are you, do you have a problem with senior citizen discounts? Right, a student discount at a movie theater is exclusive only to students and discounts all non-students. Yeah, it does discriminate against non-students. Do you have a problem with that? I don't. Right, I teach at a high school that only high school students enrolled in that high school can attend. That's exclusive. It discounts and, and, and discriminates against all non-Southland students. Is that a problem? I don't know of anyone who says, yes, that's a problem. All right, so we don't have a problem with truth being exclusive when it is grounded in objective truth. Saying two plus two is four is exclusive and all other answers are wrong, but no one takes issue with that because they have an initial assumption that there's a difference between religious and moral truths then there are mathematical, scientific, or historical truths. Saying George Washington is the first president is exclusive and discounts all other presidents. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What's the point? So I want to get them to, to think about the claims that they're actually making and see those kind of hidden assumptions. Now here, I'm running, oh man, I'm already running out of time, but here's what gets to, I think, the most important point in responding to claims of intolerance is by asking good questions. Now, there's a few different questions that can be asked. The first one being, what do you mean by that? What, what do you mean by the claim that you make? So, for example, imagine a little role play scenario again where I'm an atheist, you're the Christian, all right? And I come up, you come up to me, you're evangelizing, and you say, hey, you should believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation or whatever. We get to that point. And I go, you know, God doesn't even exist. Now, how would most Christians respond to that? Yes, he does. He does exist. And then I, the atheist, say, prove it. Now you have this overwhelming burden to where now you have to try and prove the existence of God to me, someone who's probably not really willing to accept it, and I'm just going to probably shoot down everything that you have to say. Now imagine a different scenario where you're evangelizing and you are pre preaching the gospel and, hey, come to Jesus for salvation. Atheist says, God doesn't exist. And you say, what do you mean by God? Oh, you know, God is this mean bully who sits up in the sky, you know, guy, big, long, white beard, you know, kind of looks like Santa Claus. And he's just always judging everybody, telling us what we can and can't do. And you respond, oh, yeah, I don't believe in that God either. What God are you, which God is that? Oh, I'm talking about the Christian God. Now, here's another question. How did you come to the conclusion that that's what the Christian God is like? Oh, well, that's what the Bible teaches. Third question, where did you get that information? Well, from the Bible. Can you point to a verse? My assumption is they're probably not going to be able to point to a verse because it doesn't exist. It says God looks like Santa Claus, sits up in the sky, is always judging people. Now, if they're educated and they know that some stuff, they're going to point to maybe some passages in the Old Testament about judgment and all that kind of stuff. And we've talked about that before. There are other videos you can look at. But asking these good questions, how much easier is it for you, the believer, to enter into that conversation to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, to evangelize when you know you don't have to make this incredible defense and, and carry this incredible burden. Instead, you have to sit there. You ask good questions. Hey, this is what's true. How, what do you mean by God? How did you come to that conclusion? Where did you get your information? These are incredible questions that help. 
This is what I often teach when it comes to the topic of evolution. Do you believe, don't you, you Christians, den you deny evolution. How could you be science deniers? Well, what do you mean by evolution? Because if you're talking about just change over time, I believe in it. If you're talking about small changes within a species, we're good to go. Yeah, breed one kind of a dog with a new kind of dog. You get a new, another dog, you get a new kind of dog. Now, if you're talking about a neo-Darwinian kind of macroevolution, common ancestry definition for evolution, now my, then my question is going to be, okay, how did you come to the conclusion that it's true? What evidence do you have to support this claim? If the person's claiming evolution is a fact, get them to have, get them to support it. Get them to give you the evidence and then you weigh that evidence. Now, if you don't know how to respond, if you've never heard the evidence that they're presenting, then you say, hey, can I take some time to think about that? Let's talk about this again next week. That is a great point. G give them credit for bringing up a good point that you don't know. And if you have thought about it, then you can ask another question. Hey, have you considered this? Have you considered that this evidence can just as easily be explained by a common creator as it does a common designer? If there's similar DNA, could that be the result of a common creator instead of a common, sorry, instead of a common ancestor? Since we have similar bone structures, could that be the result of a common creator instead of a common ancestor? Sure, common creators make things similar all the time. So why not a common creator? Well, God doesn't exist. All right, let's get back and talk about the existence of God. Let's talk about the reasons to believe that Jesus Christ is God. Because look, if the Christianity is true, if God exists, creation explains the evidence so well. Asking these questions is so incredibly valuable. Another question to consider is, hey, what happens if you're wrong? Now, this is kind of presented in, in some ways as, as Pascal's wager. Now, what is often done incorrectly is we use Pascal's wager to try to somehow say that Christianity is true, and it doesn't work that way, right? But Pascal's wager is simply, hey, if I as a Christian live out my life as a Christian, and it turns out I am wrong. What do I lose? Nothing, right? Especially if atheism is true. We all just die and our lives end. And hey, I had a good life. I enjoy, I enjoy my life. I didn't miss out on anything. But to the non-Christian, if, if you're wrong and atheism, sorry, and, and Christianity is true, what do you lose? Well, you lose everything. Now, that doesn't mean Christianity therefore is true because there's a greater loss if it were true. What hopefully this does is it causes someone to think about the idea of what if I'm wrong? And it's going to cause that deeper thought. Think about it in the abortion debate. If I am pro-life and I'm trying to argue for the life of the unborn and I'm wrong, what do I lose? I can't think of a huge loss, a huge significance of what I lose if I'm trying to argue for life. Yeah, maybe some, some freedom for women and not allowing them to go through abortion if an abortion really is just removing a clump of tissue. But if you are pro-abortion and the unborn is a valuable human being, what happens if they're wrong? If they're wrong and the unborn is a valuable human being, then we have legally murdered 55 million innocent children since 1973. That to me seems like a huge issue. And that's why an argument often presented is if we're not sure if the unborn is human or not, if that's even a question, then abortion should not be legal. It's like, you know, the common illustration is imagine you're about to uh, demolish a building, right? There's an apartment structure, it's run down, it's old, and you've lined up all the explosives and you're about to blow it up. And then all of a sudden someone comes running up and goes, hey, there's a kid's bicycle sitting out in the front of the front door. The chain is kind of broken off and, and the mom doesn't know where he is. He might be inside. Do you go, well, there's a 50-50 chance he's not inside. Let's blow up the building. 
Now, how confident do you have to be that the child is not inside before you blow up that building? Most would say 100%. What if you only check the first floor out of 10? You go, ah, he's not on the first floor. We're good to go. Demolish the building. Who's going to push that button? Probably not you. What if you check the first five out of 10? You're 50% sure he's not in that building. Who's going to push that button? No. I'm assuming if you're watching, you're going to expect that all 10 floors of that apartment building are checked to where you're 100% sure the boy is not in that building before you're willing to demolish that building. If there's any question, what if you're wrong? This should cause us to take that step back before jumping onto the assertions that we often make. We're very quick to jump to conclusions. Asking that question causes us to think a little bit deeper about that conclusion that we are making, about that assertion that we're making before we jump to those endpoints. Let's take that step back. Let's think about this for a second. And these questions can be applied to so much. It can be applied to business. Hey, someone's trying to sell me some product. All right, how'd you come to the conclusion that your product's better? Okay, that's your answer. Have, have you considered this company's giving me a 5% discount? What are you willing to do, right? This is business negotiations. These questions apply to so much. But what this does is it stops people. It causes them to think deeper. And again, the videos that I'm going to post below, uh, I think do this very, very, very well. I talked about this in a live stream a while back of this idea of gender identity. My question that I have is how do you define within the transgender community, the LGBTQ community, how would you define woman? How would you define man? Because the moment you say a woman has such and such anatomy, that if you have female anatomy, you are a gender woman, you now discredit all transgender individuals who say that their biological sex does not match their gender identity. Okay, so if it's not biology, how do you define woman? Well, if you're going to define it based on your sexual attraction, that a woman is someone who's attracted to a man, well, now that discredits all lesbians. Because the moment you're attracted to a a, a or all gay people, the moment you're attracted to a man, and that makes you a woman. But no, that's not how it works. So they wouldn't go with that definition. If you're going to say it's based on these socially constructed ideas that boys like blue and girls like pink, the moment, well, what about the guy who likes pink? Doesn't make he's a woman. He can still be a guy. Well, yeah, of course he can. Okay, so then how do we define woman? Well, the video I'll post, uh, just yesterday I, it was posted, and it went to a women's march where people are, where the women are standing up for women's rights, which is awesome. If it's standing up for equal treatment, which should be done, we should be treated equally. It's standing up for women. And then after they give all these re- reasons of how men are mistreating women, he asked the question, what do you mean by woman? The first qu- good question to ask. And none of them were able to answer this question. And he said, what is an inherent difference between a man and a woman? And the lady said, I don't know how to answer that. In fact, when he said, can you define what a woman is? You're here defending women. What is a woman? One woman said, that's a trick question. It's, it's, it's something that they haven't, probably haven't thought about. I think that they actually can't answer and be consistent because the moment they define it in a certain way, they're going to discriminate some certain people group. Asking these deep questions really causes people to think deeply. The final response in our last few minutes that we have is having a good attitude. First is embracing humility. If you come into these conversations, rather than demanding, I'm right, here's what you have to do, listen to me, and you say, look, I could be wrong about this, especially on issues that we could, right? I do that all the time with eschatology and age of the earth. Hey, I could be wrong, but here are my reasons for this. What reasons do you have? How did you come to the conclusion that you hold? That simple acknowledgement of I could be wrong 
does wonders at making you more approachable in these conversations rather than someone who always believes that they're right and is forcing your views on other people. What about trusting in God's sovereignty? Recognizing, look, it is him who is in control of leading that person to Jesus Christ. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that draws them in. It's not the things that I say. And I don't have to do X, Y, Z. I don't have to win that person right now. That's God's job. Let me relax, trust in him, preach the gospel, and believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in their life. Um, Trusting God that he is in control. Praying that God would give us insight in conversations as well as work in in their lives. One that I already talked about is avoid trying to force your opinion on them. Right. Instead, say, hey, I got questions. You got questions. Let's talk about this. Do you want to ask these questions together? Let's seek out this stuff. Why do you hold to that view that you do? And then ultimately, listen. People like to talk. And when you listen, you say, hey, tell me more about that. Hey, I want to hear what's important to you. Share your thoughts. How did you come to that conclusion? They feel empowered. They feel special. They're going to share those thoughts with you rather than, again, seeing themselves as two people on two different sides of a big fight. And so, hey, thank them for trusting themselves. Thank you for, thank them for sharing those ideas with you. And then hopefully that will lead to you being able to sit down, build relationships, and ultimately ask good questions that causes people to think deeply about the beliefs that they have, recognizing hopefully that their beliefs have flaws, have errors. And then ultimately, if they trust you saying, okay, well, what do you think? And then you're able to present the truth and love and grace. So hopefully there are my thoughts in helping you engage in those conversations where people claim that Christians are intolerant, hateful. What do you mean by intolerant? How did you come to that conclusion? Make them think about what they're saying rather than simply just make assertions that are out there. So with that, I'm going to sign off, hopefully continuing to help you think deeply about Christian truth and be prepared to share it in the culture that you live in. See you guys.